Hello and welcome to JP Morgan's At Any Rate podcast. I'm Meera Chandan from the Epic uh, Strategy team here in London. And I'm joined today uh, by our co-head of US Rate Strategy, Jay Barry in New York. Uh, it's been a pretty event-laden week uh, with specific uh, regards to the US uh, markets. We've had a much-awaited FOMC meeting, which managed to deliver on the hawkish side. Uh, we've had a pretty punchy US employment uh, report today. Uh, so it would be reasonable to start uh, with the market that's most closely associated with these events, uh, U.S. rates. So, Jay, let's start with you. Uh, you had a pretty bearish bias on U.S. yields so far. Uh, what is your take on uh, the FOMC and payrolls report from today, and what's the view on Treasury yields going forward? Sure, Mira, and thanks for having me today. So it's been a heck of a week with front-end yields about 30 basis points higher and the broad treasury curve about 20 basis points flatter. And, and I think what we've seen is markets heading into the week clearly seeing less hawkish delivery from a number of other DM central banks over the last two weeks. We're anticipating the Fed chair to make some sort of um, acknowledgement that there's room for a downshift in the pace of hikes after this fourth and potentially final 75 basis point hike that we got this week. And I think we certainly saw that in the statement, and markets initially latched on to the to the statement, which talked about um, that the cumulative tightening to date and the lags with, with which monetary policy affects the economy should be a reason to think that this drives the pace of hikes going forward. And sure enough, markets were pricing in a reduced probability of a 75 basis point hike at the next meeting, but it was the press conference that sort of flipped the script there. Um, and I think it's been sort of more in line with what we've been hearing from our economists, which is that um, the incoming data that we've seen over the last couple of months indicates the terminal rate may need to be higher. So yes, the Fed has the potential to slow down in December, and we continue to look for a 50 basis point hike, but there's a likelihood that the Fed may need to continue on into further hikes in, in 2023, particularly if the data remains resilient. And that was the theme out of employment this morning. Um, headline payroll growth outpaced consensus expectations by nearly 70K with some revisions higher the last couple of months. And I think there's some debate about the un unemployment rate rising and the decline in the household survey. You know, we do notice that the household survey can be volatile from month to month, but either way, this employment report shows that the labor markets remain resilient and run the risk that the Fed needs to sort of continue on in its hiking path further into 2023. And with that, this week, you can see that the markets have priced in a terminal Fed funds rate about 40 basis points higher than it did just a week ago. So um, a terminal Fed funds rate somewhere in the vicinity of 510, 515, um, and actually less easing as we head into the second half of 2023. So the move in rates has been really um, driven by that. The fact that we've repriced terminal so aggressively has driven this move to higher yields and to a flatter curve. And I think as we look at things here, um, it's unlikely that the market will probably price in a higher terminal rate over the near term now that the Fed and NFP are out of the way and that we still have another five or six weeks until the next SCP is released at the December Fed meeting. So perhaps from that perspective, what has been one of the key drivers of the move to higher yields should be something more neutral right now. And particularly so because when we look at 10-year yields sitting where they are right now, somewhere in the vicinity of 415, that they look fairly priced in the context of how the market's pricing the Fed and inflation and growth over the medium term. So I think this means you should, all else equal, start to find a bit more stability here. But the resting issue that we've been worried about <clears throat> is that you could have an overshoot in valuations. And 
we've been talking about this uneasy disequilibrium that exists in the U.S. rates market, where this year we've lost the Fed, we've lost U.S. bank, and we've lost foreign demand for treasuries, all of which have been really price-insensitive sources of demand. And we need to find the price-sensitive buyers. And as we know, with performance in bond markets so challenging this year, and the U.S. ag index down about 15 or 16%, with active managers underperforming, there's really little sort of appetite for investors to further add duration right now that are more price-sensitive in nature. So it will probably take lower volatility and greater policy certainty to get those buyers back off the sidelines. And this means that we could potentially overshoot over the near term, particularly because we know positioning has turned a lot less short this year in our treasury client surveys at basically its longest levels in the last two plus years. And we're heading into a very illiquid time of the year where treasury market depth has already come off its local peak in September. And sequentially, it tends to weaken further into November and December. So against the backdrop of this sort of demand imbalance over the near term, with potential sort of long liquidations heading into the end of the year, it makes me think that we could sort of overshoot, even though we're sitting here basically at our year-end targets right now. Um, sure. So it looks like uh, a further upside in U.S. yields um, on the nominal uh, side. Uh, so let's talk about real yields, because for a lot of FX investors, um, that is uh, something that they focus quite a bit on is, as well. And uh, those have been stable for the last six weeks or so, but they are indeed at a historically um, high level. What are your thoughts on uh, U.S. real yields uh, from here? Yeah, I'd say in stark contrast to the nominal market, Mira, um, we do find some value here in, in real yields. And it's pretty notable that sort of tips break evens across the curve um, when we look at them versus their drivers uh, appear to be considerably narrow, um, anywhere in the vicinity of sort of 20 to 25 basis points too narrow, which is a, a pretty large divergence in most of those frameworks. And I think as a corollary to that, when we overlay the level of nominal yields on top of that, it means from a longer term perspective, that long-term real yields actually look too high, um, somewhere in the vicinity of 40 to 50 basis points too high right now. So I think as we look ahead, um, we think that there's more value in real than nominal yields, given this sort of mispricing in the break-even market. And it stands out to us that break-evens have been less sensitive to move in nominal yields and seem to be much more sensitive to move in risk assets. I think though TIPS are a, a government product and they represent something like seven plus percent of the treasury market, they trade with much lower volumes and much lower turnover and tend to have a very high sensitivity to, to risk appetite here. Um, and given that, they, they look quite cheap. So again, we don't think it's a necessarily a near-term development, but as markets get more comfortable with the pace and terminal rate for the Fed, um, we do think that there's room for, for really else to decline. And in our projections into next year, we have long-term real yields moving about 30 basis points lower against this this backdrop. So we think that there's been a bigger disconnect in real yields than there has been in nominals, Mira, and that there is some value at the long end of the curve there right now. Um, shifting gears a bit, uh, let's let's talk about the U.S. midterm elections next week. Um, it has been on the back burner with everything else going on in markets. Uh, but is there anything that would make this relevant for rates markets? You know, overall, we would say no. I think Looking at the way um, polling is working out right now, the baseline assumption seems to be that the Republicans will will win back the House of um, Representatives and that the Senate will stay in Democratic control. 
which would, of course, result in a split Congress. And then that would bring gridlock to the government over the course of the next two years until the presidential election in 2024. So in sort of times of gridlock, it's, it's hard to accomplish anything on the fiscal side, which would mean very little you know, from growth or from a rates perspective there, particularly because earlier this year, we saw that the Inflation Reduction Act was passed um, and that the president announced the forgiveness of some student loan debt. But as we kind of move past the midterms, if we do get this split government, you know, there's a risk that the debt ceiling could come back into view next year. So um, the debt ceiling, we're probably somewhere in the vicinity of about $500 billion away from hitting it right now, which should leave the Treasury enough room to fund itself into early 2023, at which point it will begin to sort of use these accounting measures that they call extraordinary measures to create borrowing headroom under the debt ceiling. Um, and that, plus its very large cash balance, means that it can borrow probably well into 2023. So it's not likely to be an imminent event for the markets. But I think the the shifting of the political winds could potentially cause this to be a more rancorous debate when it does occur in the middle of next year, because you've heard um, some of the Republican leadership who could be in place talk about potentially using the debt ceiling as a tool in order to sort of force more uh, firm or uh, larger cuts to federal spending. So I, I think that's a wild card that we need to watch out for, but it will sort of take getting past the midterms to sort of understand what that path is. And if anything, it's still pretty unclear because you've heard some rumblings from leadership of the Democratic Party that if the House is to move to Republican control, that the Democrats could use the lame duck session to raise the debt ceiling completely heading off this event. So I think we'll have to see what happens over the next few weeks. I don't see anything for the rates market, but I would just flag that this could mean a more protracted debt ceiling debate into the middle of next year. So I think perhaps, Mira, maybe it makes sense to sort of pivot things back to you and to see what's happening in the FX markets. Um, uh, the team, your team has been long dollars for most of the year. Um, how are you feeling about this call in the wake of the Fed meeting on Wednesday and, and the payroll report today? Uh, yes, yeah, we have been, um, been uh, bullish on the dollar um, all year. And, um, you know, the stance, uh, the stance on the dollar is still very much bullish. I mean, we, we have been breaking out, taking a step back. We have been breaking out um, the dollar view into uh, two parts. It's, it's been motivated by two main reasons. And the first of those reasons is actually the U.S. side of the equation, uh, which is uh, predominantly in large part um, includes the Fed and the persistence of inflation that we're seeing there. And um, I have to say that um, the U.S. developments, at least this week, have been very much consistent uh, with uh, with the uh, bullish dollar view. Uh, you had a Fed um, and a Powell that was, uh, uh, you know, while, while open-minded uh, to the possibility of a slow pace of hikes, nonetheless still pushing the uh, story on the peak rates uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, having still more upside to it. And um, I think from the U.S. rates channel, uh, this can be a pretty uh, decent source of support for the dollar. Um, and, and of course, the payrolls report today has further uh, sort of reinforced uh, that um, that a U.S. side uh, bullish push for the dollar. Um, I think the important thing to keep in mind is uh, that the Fed, in the course of its uh, heightened cycle this time, has really managed to transform uh, the status of uh, of the dollar's um, carry uh, ranking in um, in the world. Uh, basically, uh, the dollar now uh, yields more than 
50% of the currencies globally. Uh, you know, it's spread versus other reserve currencies like the Japanese yen and the euro is close to a 15-year high. Um, and I, I think as the Fed continues to push the envelope on this, uh, the dollar demand, um, you know, for uh, from investors, just given this higher yield and frankly, uh, you know, rising prospects and rising risks of a Fed-induced recession should mean that actually dollar should uh, should benefit uh, from what's going on in the U.S. right now. So we do think uh, we do think that uh, at least the U.S. side of the equation, uh, the events this week have managed to uh, solidify that. Uh, but you know, that being said, there are a few uh, cross currents here that uh, that we are a little bit more wary of. Uh, but that's outside of the U.S., not really within the U.S. at the moment. Thanks for that, Mira. So the dollar on on track still to remain strong. Um, I think as we sort of look ahead and thinking about the the market reaction post Fed and post NFP, is there anything else changing that that you should be that we should be aware of right now in in FX land? Yeah, I mean there is uh, there's a few cross currents. Like I said, uh, the first the, the first thing is uh, you know that uh, as when I started talking about the dollar. Uh, I mentioned that there are two parts to the narrative, and the first is the U.S. side, which mostly seems to be actually pushing even further ahead. The cross currents are really coming from outside the U.S., and uh, there are a few things going on that are worth paying attention to, and that's keeping us, uh, that's made us a bit more cautious on um, on uh, the, the sort of the defensive view of the world. I mean, we're still not defensive, but just uh, the things that we're tracking in this regard are really what's going on outside the U.S. with respect to uh, growth momentum. A large part of uh, the dollar strength that we've seen here to date has been a function of weakness in China and weakness in Europe. And um, what we've seen in some of our faster moving metrics, such as our economic activity surprise indices, uh, our economist growth forecasts, uh, what we've seen is that there has been now recently in uh, in the last six weeks or so a neutralizing of the negative growth momentum that we were seeing in these economies, and um, to some extent, what that means is that uh, um, that uh, you know at least on the uh, side of the equation outside of the U.S., uh, we are seeing a less bullish uh, sort of dollar narrative unfolding. You know, this is not to say that these growth vulnerabilities have gone away. Of course, our underlying macro view is that this kind of recovery is still quite fragile. If you look at, uh, you know, these uh, our economic activity surprise indices and our growth forecasts are only a subset of the growth indicators we track. And there are certain sort of longer term multi-year vulnerabilities, energy dependence in um, in uh, uh, Europe, just to give an example, that are not going away overnight. So that is something that we are still concerned about. And that's really what's keeping us net defensive. But we do realize that there are certain the line cross currents that could keep market price action quite choppy uh, going into year end. And as you said, Jay, uh, market liquidity does tend to worsen here um, uh, go going into year end. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that we've had some news reports, um, and that's happened today, of uh, some more positive news coming from China uh, in terms of uh, the potential for reopenings. And that's, that's a space to watch and obviously could have uh, a potential impact on overall risk sentiment and as a result, um, impact on the dollar. Um, and the final thing I'll say is, you know, you, you made some very interesting comments about U.S. real yields. Um, that tends to be a pretty important factor in um, uh, in how FX investors approach uh, approach uh, their markets. And uh, rising U.S. real yields is really what is often needed to motivate 
uh, these capital inflows into the uh, US and away from the rest of the world. And if the expectation for at least some of the investors is now that US real yields are likely to stabilize, then, um, you know, as, as you are client, a view that you are client, then possibly you could get some sort of relief uh, for high beta currencies from this channel. Um, you know, is it uh, is is this factor completely out? You know, completely out of the woods yet? I'm not really sure. I think it's it's premature at this point to say that this is no longer going to be a source of support for the dollar. It's again a space to watch, uh, but certainly, as I said, we do have a few cross currents going on right now that's likely to keep my market price action choppy. So the way we are approaching this is, look, we're. We're still uh, net bullish on the dollar, retaining our forecasts. We're a bit more cautious in how we express uh, the long dollar view, and you know we just think that it's better expressed um, through uh, through options when you know investors are able to do so rather than uh, outright expressions uh, of the view. Uh, we will stop here today, um, as discussed. Uh, still bullish the dollar, uh, but a bit more cautiously uh, post Fed and uh, the U.S. payrolls report, and on the U.S. rates side. Uh, we still uh, have a bearish bias on uh, U.S. yields overall. Uh, if you need uh, more information on our research, please visit jpmorganmarkets.com. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on November 4th, 2022.